shared this with you before, and it actually begins one of the chapters of the recent book I wrote. But it's good for setting the table for what we have to look at this morning. It's been a number of years ago now, 10, 12, 15, I don't know. I heard that a well-known Christian author was preaching at a nearby church. I'd read some of his work, knew about his ministry to some degree. And by the way, he's not anybody that's on TV right now. He's basically an author. But I wanted to, to hear him speak and uh, wait to hear him speak. He announced his text, Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 which says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He went on to explain this by saying that God is still telling each of us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, good so far. But then he said this. He said that he had personally visited over 100 countries. Well, good for him. I'm glad he had that opportunity, and I'm sure he did a, a great job. Thank the Lord he was able to do that. But then he said this, and it's incredible. He said, how many of you, how many countries have you visited? Now, I know he was attempting to motivate the listeners, but that question is totally out of bounds. He has the, he had had the opportunity because of his notoriety to travel around and be in a lot of places. But the truth of the matter is, and you and I both understand this, uh, I don't think anybody here will ever visit a hundred countries. It's just not going to happen. But is that, is that what God said we were supposed to do? If it is, we better, you know, contact our travel agent real quick. Isn't that what Scripture says? Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. How about Matthew 28, verse 19? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Is that our responsibility? Isn't that what the Bible says? Well, let me reiterate to begin with, and we're going to be dealing with the Great Commission this morning. The very last few verses in the book of Matthew. The very point, the very focus of everything going forward from Christ's resurrection to us today and including us is about the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, he had told them on various occasions and multiple times that after he rose from the dead to go into Galilee, that he would meet them there. And so we read in verse 16, And then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, we read that last week. Some of them hadn't seen him after his resurrection. Probably hadn't even heard all the reports but heard that Jesus was going to actually be there. He had risen from the dead. Now, even though verse 16 says it was the 11 disciples, uh, most Bible scholars will agree that it was probably that group referred to by Paul in 
1 Corinthians 15, when he said over, he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, the believers begin to hear Jesus has risen from the dead. He's going to meet us at a certain place and location in Galilee. I expect there was a pretty good crowd there. And Jesus did not really deal with their doubt. I mean, some of them were, yeah, I don't know, I, is this really true? He didn't say a word. He didn't condemn them. He just stood there and gave them the Great Commission. That took care of all their doubts. Here he was in person. And so he gives them the Great Commission, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, in verse 18. And then verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In fact, virtually the same thing that uh, is recorded in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. There is no doubt that the Great Commission is our mission. It is our purpose. It is our focus. It is God's plan for this age and for the church. And please don't misunderstand that. We want to make that very clear. However, there is great confusion in Christian circles about just what our mission is. As the author that I went to hear demonstrated. Great confusion about what really is the Great Commission. And because of that, there's a whole lot of discouragement over our place in it. Because absolutely, if we have to go to a hundred countries and, and, uh, you know, preach the gospel, well, we're not going to be able to do that. So why bother? Why is it important? becomes a very discouraging thing. In fact, a lot of people just throw in the towel, give up on the responsibility. But yet, here's the responsibility staring us in the face. What I want to do this morning is three things. I want to clear up the confusion so that I can, hopefully we can, remove any discouragement that lurks there in our minds and dispel all the excuses for not being involved in the Great Commission, but more importantly, to help you understand how we can all do it, how we can all be involved. So let's take a look at the Great Commission. And the point that I want to make as we look at the Commission is simply this. The Great Commission is our mission, but we need to know how to fulfill it. Therein lies the problem. How do we fulfill the Great Commission. And there's two key truths I want you to see with me this morning. Two perspectives to this responsibility that will help us understand the Great Commission and then understand how to fulfill it. So the first thing we have to do is clarify the mandate. Now, the word mandate means the command, the commission, our responsibility. We've we got to understand it. Now, whereas as we move through chapter 26, 27 and the balance of chapter 28, we've looked at historical facts, what happened and what Jesus said, and we have drawn much from that. But today, we really need to focus on every word and understand their relationship to one another if we're going to understand what it was that he actually said. So you'll need to have your Bibles open to Matthew 28, 19, 20. We'll put it on screen when we can. You may want to have a pencil and pen ready to take a few crucial notes. Let's look at this first thing that we have to do to fulfill 
the Great Commission. We have to clarify in our minds just what it says to us. We have to clarify the mandate. Well, first of all, I want you to realize and, and understand, if you do not, that the Great Commission is about making disciples, not decisions. In fact, verse 19, we read right here, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, the, the New King James translates it well, make disciples. The, the King James Version, the original, simply said, teach all nations which is a not, a, not a really good translation because the word, the verb here is the word for disciple in the verb form of the word for disciple. So what Jesus is saying simply is this, go disciple people from all nations. That's what the Great Commission is about. Now, the fact that the New King James, as well as the King James and probably other translations as well, Insert the word make before disciples can create a lot of confusion as well. Because it's just one word in the Greek language, just one verb. And basically, if we translate it literally, it just says make, excuse me, no, it doesn't say make, it simply says disciple. Go therefore and disciple all nations. That's what it says. Literally, and, you know, to insert the word make, kind of, and it may not be a, a mistranslation, but I think we look at that phrase and we, we, we draw from it a, a wrong conclusion. Because when we say make disciples, it kind of gives us the thought and the idea that the Great Commission is only about someone becoming a disciple. It's only about someone entering into the kingdom, and that's it. I used to hear an evangelist preach quite often when I was in school, and, and, and invariably he always preached on some aspect of, of uh, sharing the gospel with other people, and he invariably always asked this question, uh, or make this statement, actually. He was like, I, I, bet, I bet most of you haven't won anybody to Jesus in the last week. Well, duh. The truth of the matter is, in my opinion, he didn't either. But he, he believed in, you know twisting the arms of every person he came to. I think he got a lot of false decisions. But the truth of the matter is, the way that leads to hell is a broad road. Most people are going to go there. And the road that leads to heaven is a narrow road. It's narrow because it doesn't need to be very wide. Okay? There's not going to be, percentage-wise, a lot of people come to Christ no matter how hard we try to convey the truth that they need Him. So the truth of the matter is, it, there may be long, long times. Uh, we may only have a few opportunities, relatively speaking, in a lifetime to literally be the person who introduces someone to Christ and see them make that initial decision and come into the kingdom of God. But the Great Commission is not about just that point in which someone becomes a disciple. It's about a much broader process. It's about discipling. And that includes everything that happens in a person's life after they become a disciple. In fact, initially, they're, they're a very immature disciple. They need a lot of help. We sometimes are misled by verses like Proverbs 11.30, which says, He that is wise winneth souls. 
Well, that's an Old Testament verse, which simply means that wise people are able to influence other people and win them over to the right perspective. And so that's descriptive of telling someone about Christ. But the misnomer is, is that we can win people to Christ. We cannot. We can introduce people to Christ. We can tell people about Christ. We can witness about Christ. But the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit, can bring anybody to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can actually win that person over through his conviction of their heart. So that's important to note. Now, we also need to drop down to verse 20 and note that part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, as Jesus says. So, there, it's very clear that the Great Commission is about a, a long process and not an initial decision. Now, it includes initial decisions. And when we have the opportunity to witness to people, we should do it. And we should hope, by God's grace, we can actually witness that happen in someone's life from time to time. Uh, but our job is simply to convey the truth to the unsaved. But it is also our job to have a ministry which involves the ongoing process of people around us becoming disciples. The next thing we need to consider here in this clarification of our responsibility is simply this. The Great Commission was given to the church. It wasn't given just to individuals. It was given to the church. This is Christ's commission of the yet-to-be-birthed New Testament church, which would come about in a few weeks. Now, we all understand the church is made up of people, so we all have a part to play in this, and we'll come back to that shortly. But the first thing we need to understand when he says, uh, go therefore into all the world to make disciples, the church has fulfilled that. The church can fulfill that. Because the church has reached to every nook and cranny of this world over the last 2,000 years. And it still is doing that. But individual Christians only are a part of that process. That's what we have to remember. The very word here translated as a command or an imperative where it says, Go, therefore, in verse 19. And, and we see the exact same word in Mark sixteen fifteen that we referenced earlier. And it's put at the beginning of the sentence in the English, and it says go, and we look at that and we think, boy, that's the command. The Great Commission's about going. Isn't that what the author I referenced was saying? How many countries have you visited? That the, the Great Commission is about going. But what we have to understand is the word go here is a participle as far as its grammatical form is. Now, participles are verbal forms that modify other verbs. So, in this case, it's modifying the verb disciple all nations. And it is giving us a circumstance involved in that process, giving us further elucidation. And so, to translate it as an imperative, go, rather than the way it should be translated, by the way, I suggest to you, 
The best way to understand this is simply looking at it this way. And this is the way it's translated in literal translations. Having gone, disciple all nations. So, you and I have had the precious privilege to be born in the United States of America. Uh, Some people would probably not recognize that unique privilege, but I think it is just that. Sometimes I've wondered, why, why by God's grace was I born in the United States of America versus some communist country, some third world country, some jungle somewhere? God placed us in this world where we're supposed to be. And not only that, but God will put us, direct us, oversee where we are going to be at any point along the way in our life, because He's a sovereign God. Our responsibility is not to go everywhere indiscriminately as we think we should, but to trust that God has put us where He wants us right now. Now, I was born in West Virginia. I've since come to North Carolina. There's a lot of circumstances involved in my coming here. But I've never doubted that God sent me here. I've been the pastor here for a good number of years. And I can clearly say to you, for the most part, I've never doubted that God sent me here. There's been a few days I wonder, okay, be honest. In my humanness. Here's what we have to remember. If we, I may have this on screen, I'm not sure I do, probably isn't. So if it's out of place, it doesn't matter. But it fits here. If we are not knowingly disobedient to the will of God, and rebellious in regard to it, we are right exactly where God wants us to be. Think about that statement. If you're not running from God like Jonah did, if you're not knowingly disobedient and rebellious against what God wants in your life, you're exactly where God wants you. Because God is God. And He puts His people where He wants them. Now we move around, we, we, we have different times in life, with different situations, circumstances through which God works, that puts us where He wants us, but we're where He wants us. That's what it means when it says, having gone, wherever you find yourself, disciple the people around you, whatever nation, place that is, having gone. And it really makes that question that author asked, how many nations have you visited totally irrelevant to understanding this commission? Now, having gone there, wherever we end up, wherever we're at, we have some responsibilities to fulfill the Great Commission. One of them is baptizing. Notice here, right after saying, make disciples of all nations, the Scripture says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, the name, the word name is singular. There's only one name of God. 
but it covers the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why when we baptize someone, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not the names of the Father, not the name of the Son. No, it's one name, three persons. Here proof positive the Scripture teaches the Trinity. The tri-unity, you want to call it, the three-part personality of the singular Godhead or the essence. But baptizing people is something the church does. You see, individual Christians don't go out and just baptize on their on their own authority. This was given to the church. The plurals here, as he spoke to this group, in anticipation of the church, make it very clear. Now, in the church, and by the way, baptism is a church command, a church ordinance, just like celebrating the Lord's Supper. So the pastor baptizes people. Now, it doesn't have to be the pastor. As long as the church determines to authorize somebody else to baptize, it's a church function. The pastor's unavailable or some other circumstance. The church can authorize a deacon or whoever uh, to represent the church and make that baptism. But we don't just run around, you know, you know, seeing people saved and, and just baptizing them on the spot. Because that person needs to be brought into the church and they need to be baptized in front of the church because baptism is the first command he gave us to present a witness and a, a testimony as to our position in Christ. So this was a church function again. But we have a part to play individually, and that's where the teaching comes in. And we will, again, come back to that in just one moment. But again, every person, in spite of the fact that these are, this is a church commission, every one of us, needs to be participating individually, because we're part of the church. Let me give you a, a quick example. This morning I got up as usual, uh, running a little bit later than usual, but uh, walked into Hardy's to get my biscuit and gravy and hash browns. I was late. Somebody beat me there. I thought, no, gee, she's going to throw my whole schedule off. <laughs> no, not really. But I went in they, just as they were coming out. I walked up to the counter, and the man behind the counter Noticed I was there, never said a single word. Walked over, got my coffee, the right amount of creams, the salt and pepper I require, set it on the counter, turned around, got my biscuits and gravy and hash browns, put it on the table. I handed him my card, not a single word was exchanged. Because I go in there every Sunday morning at that time, and I order the same thing every week, and he's really good at what he does. By the way, I used to go somewhere else, and then they decided to put my biscuits and gravy in a little cardboard cup and give me about half of the gravy I used to get. And so, you know, I, you know, but anyway, I started going to Hardy's recently, and this guy is really good at what he does. And I didn't see another soul. He's hand on the counter. He's back there cooking. He's hand on the drive through He's doing the whole thing. But I know, because I've seen it in the past, there's somebody back there in the kitchen baking biscuits. And normally, I think they were late this morning, but normally there's somebody at the grill fixing the food. The one guy served me, basically. That's all I could see. There's a lot of other things going on in the background. Now, the church is not just about the person who meets the unbeliever in whatever walk of life or circumstance they meet them and witness to them, but the church is about the whole process 
of discipling people. And you, you see the pastor up here, you see the Sunday school teacher up here, but we're all like the guy at the grill or the, or the person in the kitchen baking the biscuit. We all have a role to play in the Great Commission. That's what we have to remember. So let's move on to the second of our two ways that we need and can fulfill the Great Commission, and that is to utilize the methodology that was given us here in this commission. Utilize the methodology. Now, first of all, going back to that word disciple, it is a, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's incumbent upon the church to disciple. So we need to be involved in that process since we are the church. Now, some again think that the word go is the point, and I've already covered that. That's just the circumstance. But there's two other participles here in this sentence that also modify the main verb disciple. Unlike the participle which says having gone, which gives you the circumstance, these other two participles give you the methodology required to be able to disciple. We've already mentioned them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. So there's your two-part methodology. Baptizing, teaching. Now, whereas most of us will never baptize anybody, that's a church function. We, we certainly have an obligation to be here and rejoice when someone's baptized. And then, then we know to encourage that person and assist that person going forward. But all of us can have a teaching role, which I would say here in this text is equivalent to the whole thought of edifying or building each other up in Christ. <clears throat> so let's, let's take a look at these two participles, this two-part methodology. And we're going to focus on the second part, which is teaching. Now, both baptizing and teaching are present tense participles. By the way, going, that was a past tense, if you're going to put it in English terminology. Having going. This is the circumstance, situation you find yourself in. Now we have the present tense participles, which tell us what we need to be doing every day now that we're here. You know, wherever we're at. In regard to the people we know in regard to our fellow believers in the church, in regard to the people we work with, in regard to our communities, especially in regard to our homes. We need to be, all the time, present tense, continually, we need to be a teacher. Now, obviously, pastors need to be teachers. And only those who have the gift of teaching should be a pastor. According to 1 Timothy 3, 2, one of the qualifications for being a pastor is being able to teach. You've got to have that gift. Pastors, evangelists, people in the ministry, big M, are to perfect the saints, Ephesians 4.12. means supply what the church needs, what the individuals of the church need, as far as instruction. Now, beyond that, there are other individual Christians that have the gift of teaching but have never been called to the office of being a pastor. So some people are teachers because of their gift and, and they may teach in a Sunday school class, they may teach a Bible study, they may 
uh, teach in various other ways and functions in the church. They may even, may even disciple believers, other believers, new believers, one-on-one. And they have the gift of teaching. And they, they should focus on that. And they should make that, uh, you know, priority one in their ministry, the more formal teaching. But beyond the pastor and those with the gift of teaching, there is more of an informal aspect to teaching. So let's talk about just a few of them. Let's talk about uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8, Jesus says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. That's, that's not equivalent to the Great Commission. It's a commentary on what's going to happen because of the Great Commission. Jesus says, you're going to do this. He's not talking to any one person because any one person could fail to do that. And when any one person doesn't have the facility maybe to go to all those places. But he's again talking to the church. The church is going to be spread out and, and become witnesses to me. Not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By the way, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I know I got this out of sequence, guys. But Acts 8, 1 tells us exactly how God saw that that was going to happen. He sent Saul, the persecutor, who later became Paul, the apostle. Now Saul was consenting to his death, and at the time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Well, that's because of Paul, called Saul in those days. And they, that is the church, were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles stayed there. So God instituted the circumstances that pushed the church out. Again, we see God's sovereign role in determining where we go. It's not that individual Christians just go, you know, well, I think I'll go to, you know, Norway this month, and I'll go to... You know, uh, Italy next month. We we don't have the ability to do that. Nor do we need to worry about doing that. Because we're where God wants us to be. Because God's sovereign. Just like he, he, He dealt with the church and He pushed them out where they needed to be. Sometimes it's problems. Sometimes it's a job loss. Sometimes it's a family need. There's many reasons that sometimes God removes us from one place and puts us somewhere else. But in Acts 1.8, he says, you shall be witnesses. You know what that means? That means telling somebody else about Jesus Christ, which is a rudimentary, uh, informal instruction, teaching. So let's go to Ephesians 6.4. Ephesians 6.4, the Bible says, and ye fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, mothers are not mentioned here because he's talking to the head of the home, but obviously mothers are a part of this. They're one. Husband and wife are one. You are to train and admonish your children. Well, training means it's translated nurture in the King James only, or not the King James Version, not the New King James. The training or the nurture, that's discipline. Admonition. The word in the Greek literally means to put into someone's head what they need to know. Parents teach, should teach, ought to teach their children. That's teaching. That's part of the Great Commission when you're doing that at home with your children. In fact, 
It's one of the most important aspects of evangelism. And we'll see that here in just a moment. I, I won't mess those guys up any further back there. But uh, Moving on to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. God references to Timothy the fact that from a child he had learned the Holy Scriptures. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter, or second, I should have said 2 Timothy 3.15, and then 2 Timothy 1.5, he actually mentions Peter's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, who taught him the Holy Scriptures from the time he was a child. One of the most important, most important aspects of the Great Commission is what you do at home and what your grandparents do as well in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul wrote to, wrote these words too, and he says that the older women ought to admonish the younger women or teach the younger women. So not only is there a parent, child, grandparent, grandchild, there's an older to younger dynamic here in our teaching. And those that have known the Lord for many years have much to teach those that are younger and those that haven't known Him for near as long. Then we're even told in 1 Peter 3.15 that we ought to be ready to give an answer to every man for the hope that is within us. There is all sorts, all different aspects and flavors of informal teaching that we participate in no matter what our spiritual gift is or no matter what we do in a public sense. Those are private informal aspects of teaching and it's equivalent to edification which means to build up other believers which is the result of that whole process we see in Ephesians 4:11. he gave some pastors and teachers and evangelists and so forth why for the perfecting of the saints so the saints have supplied for them what they need to grow and learn and then it says for the work of the ministry then the saints get involved in the ministry why for the edification of the body of Christ are building each other up using their spiritual gifts and informal opportunities and formal opportunities to teach and instruct and assist others so herein is how we the individual fit in to the great commission go back circle back for a moment this is on screen this comes from Lionel Hunt's book, the, Hand, the Handbook of Child Evangelism. He gives us these statistics. I guess you guys are waiting on me to... T- I got I, Not all there this morning. There you go. Uh, he quotes research that's been done. It says, before age four, 1% of the people that get saved get saved before age four. Between ages 4 and 14, 85% of those who will only become Christians will receive Christ before the age of 15. Then 10% before the age of 30. And over 30, only 4% of all that get saved, get saved after age 30. Unfortunately, we, we sometimes sit around and think, well, you know, uh, the children's ministry, that, that's, that's something we do to occupy the children while we adults are in here worshiping. Maybe we ought to turn it around. This is how we occupy the adults while the children are, you know, having their lives changed. Oh, yeah. But it's both important, you understand. It's both a part of that process. Sometimes we're introducing people to Christ, but most of the time we are 
teaching people to be disciples of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says, I planted, but Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. See, sometimes you have the opportunity to plant. You plant seeds, witness to people. And other times we water, we instruct, we edify, we encourage, we teach. That occupies the greater amount of our time. What am I saying? I'm saying we all have an important part in fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not somehow second-class Christians because I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher, I'm not this, I'm not... You are a transformed, born-again, power-packed, Holy Spirit-controlled, hopefully, Christian. And what you do and say is of vital importance. I, I would suggest to you the things that you have said... People you have witnessed to, seeds you have planted, you thought were just water over the dam, has contributed to the conversion of people that you don't even know about. It's the Holy Spirit does the work. It's not about being there at the moment a person is saved. It's about taking whoever you find in your, in your circle of influence, in your church, in your family, at your workplace, in your community, the people you just naturally bump into, the people you know. That's your world. You are where God puts you at the center of that world. So where do we begin then to individually fulfill the Great Commission? Where do we plug in? Where do we get involved? Right where we are at, at this moment. That's where. Right where we're at today, the bar, the next day, in the normal circle of your life. With those people you already know, and new people you might meet. Let me just illustrate it this way. Let's talk about a teacher, a math teacher. I'm talking about a math teacher that, you know, really teaches two plus two equals four. Okay. Just, just to clarify, a teacher finds a student who can't count. What does that teacher do? She introduces them to mathematics. She teaches that child how to count from one to ten. That's the beginning. Then a teacher may have other students who already know how to count from one to ten. So she takes that student where they're at and she teaches them or he teaches them to add and subtract. Teachers may encounter other students who already know how to add and subtract. So what do they do? They teach them how to multiply and divide. You get the, the you understand the process here. Teaching is a discipleship in effect. We encounter some people who don't know anything about Christ. We need to in, inform them about Christ. They need to know how to count to 1 to 10, in other words. Other people we will encounter will be believers. They already can count to 10, spiritually speaking. They need a little more instruction and help to grow out of infancy. Others are fairly well mature, and we can maybe help them with their division and multiplication and maybe even a little algebra, you know along the way. 
very little algebra in my case. But. This is the Great Commission described in a different way, a similar process. This is what we're all doing. Now, here's one other thing to keep in mind as we conclude. We have wrongly understood the Great Commission basically to be a person becoming a Christian, telling people about Jesus, leading them to Christ, winning a soul, eliciting a profession of faith, whatever you want to call it. That's, that's the point at which somebody is born into the kingdom. But see, we, we know more caused that birth than the doctor who delivered the baby caused that birth. He just assisted in the process. That's what we do when a person becomes a Christian, when they're born. But there's a whole lot more people that we encounter in our lives along the way that we need to adopt. We had nothing to do with their birth, but we need to adopt them right where they're at, become their encourager, their teacher, their edifier, their their discipler. Birth and adoption are both part of the Great Commission. So I urge you to be a part of the Great Commission. Don't make excuses, just do it. Because we all can do it. You see, we somehow got it in our heads to all too often that only specialized preachers and evangelists and maybe missionaries and, you know, maybe a Sunday school teacher. There's only just a few people that can do it. And well, you know, I go to church and, you know, maybe I can support with my presence and my offerings and all, but uh, I'm not really fulfilling the Great Commission. And we, we get discouraged and we, we feel inadequate and we feel like we're failures and, and we just don't do anything. There's a world of opportunity. And every one of us is involved. We might be making biscuits. We might be working at the grill. We might be serving at the front counter. There's a place for us in the Great Commission. No excuses.